Hello, friends. Welcome to the Christchurch Port Orange Midweek Podcast, where we deep dive into the scriptures we examined from the previous Sunday morning without the constraint of time, as well as discuss questions and topics of interest from members of our Christchurch family. I'm Pastor Jesse Jarvis, your host. Let's dive in. This week, we're going to be covering the book of Leviticus that we had covered in our Bible reading from last week. If you're following with us real time, this past Sunday was January the 29th, and we did not have regular services, so there was no Sunday sermon. Instead, we all gathered for an outdoor event, fifth Sunday fun day. We had a phenomenal time together and celebrated with five baptisms. It was a beautiful day, but there wasn't a sermon covering the book of Leviticus. And so not only are we going to deep dive in the podcast today, but we are also going to be getting our only exposure to the book of Leviticus since next Sunday we're going to be jumping into the book of Numbers. I'm joined today by our worship and tech director, Bill Mayer. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. We're really glad to be with you. And uh, man, we have a dizzying podcast. We had some really insightful questions that were being asked, uh, some big picture stuff, some high level questions, and then some really specific uh, detailed questions that come from a a rigorous reading of the text. And so I'm excited to try to answer as many of those as we can. And I also want to create a bit of a framework retrospectively in how to understand and read Leviticus. I was looking back and thinking it may have been helpful to have provided some handles uh, before reading Leviticus so that you weren't flying blind. However, there's also a benefit to going into this book without preconceived expectations or notions of what you're going to find. And so you may have experienced, like many of us did, some surprising elements. Uh, You may have observed some patterns and some connections to the previous books we've already read. And uh, some of these patterns, which are going to lead to our fuller understanding of God's saving work through the life, death, and resurrection and ascension of Jesus the Messiah. So I'm really excited to get into this. Um, We are recording this on Tuesday for publication on Wednesday, and so we just finished reading through number 16. I'm going to try to have self-control and not talk about numbers at all, um, but but definitely send in your questions, and um, we'll be writing the Sunday sermon out of numbers and then covering the book of numbers in next week's podcast, midweek podcast. So Leviticus. So before we can jump into Leviticus and and uh, start to take it apart. It is it is a big book. We got 27 chapters. There's a lot of foreign material. There's big disconnects culturally between us and our faith journeys and our ancient Near Eastern counterparts. And so it's important for us to grab a hold of some themes and take those themes into consideration as we walk through some very strange occurrences, particularly in the sacrificial system that's laid out for us in the book of Leviticus. So in order to do that, I had initially thought I would isolate our time to Leviticus 19, which has a lot of the elements that are going to drive the questions that people are asking and provide kind of a starting point to address some of the relevant issues and topics. But really the center point and the the hot spot of the book of Leviticus is chapter 16, which details the Day of Atonement. And that really brings together a lot of these themes that have been developing since the early chapters of Genesis. So if you've already read this and your brain's already spinning into numbers, or maybe you're like many in our church community who are a little behind in your Bible reading and you're just finishing up Leviticus, uh, I think this will be super helpful for you. But imagine for a moment, uh, we rewind the tape back to Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, where um, the 
the sin of distrusting and disobeying God has occurred. Adam and Eve have disobeyed God's one rule and eaten from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil after being tempted by the serpent. And God comes into the garden walking in the evening breeze, has this interaction with Adam and Eve asking, where are you? And, and then um, the finger pointing begins. Adam blames the woman. The woman blames the serpent. And God begins to dole out the reality, the recompense, the, the penalty of this evil that's happened in this disobedience towards God's one rule. But he starts this by uh, rebuking and cursing the serpent. And in that rebuke comes chapter 3 and verse 15, in which God says that there will be an enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, and that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the seed of the serpent, and the seed of the serpent would crush or bruise or strike the heel of the seed of the woman. And this kind of riddle, this like enigmatic riddle, created what is the beginning of the messianic expectation. And it also creates some categories for us that are played out all the way through the books of Genesis and Exodus and start to get some real details filled out in the book of Leviticus. For instance, God is the creator of all things. Mankind is his crowning creation, bearing his image and blessed by him for fruitfulness and to exercise dominion on the planet. And so the whole earth is the dwelling place of God with man. And the special place, this Eden place, is this place of flourishing where the presence of God dwells and where mankind is interacting with God. And this is the original intention and design. God has created space-time and a particular area of fruitfulness where mankind, naked and unashamed, is in uh, every kind of social component, the seed form of marriage leading to, ch- to children and family and society, and, and uh, in a complete union with God. And this is established by faith as Adam and Eve, our first parents, express the fear of the Lord in trusting and revering God as God, seeing themselves as created in his image, and fulfilling their purpose on the earth, dwelling with God in this space, and then obeying his one restrictive command. Now, there is a backstory that predates this creation of mankind, um, and we're not given privy to a lot of that, although there are many hints of that through the scriptures that we're going to see. And even in Leviticus chapter 16, there's a big one. You may have noticed it, especially if you're reading through in the English Standard Version. But that this enemy, the serpent, um, the, the Satan, the adversary, Lucifer, the day star, the snake, all of these names for God's um, otherworldly enemy in this kind of earth preceding history that's involved in the fall of mankind and that's forecast as being a, a an enemy of God that God is victorious over through this messianic hope, the seed of the woman. This element is continuing all the way through. So we have this opposing spiritual power and this spiritual realm is now influencing the nations of the world who have become godless and losing knowledge of God, rejecting knowledge of God, and pursuing all sorts of exploitive powers and abuse and evil and idolatry throughout the rest of the world. So mankind's continued to flourish and grow and be fruitful, but it's filled the earth with atrocity. God continues to interact with the world primarily through judgment, but while there should be judgment for sin of a final kind, God is being faithful to his promise and showing his character of being slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And so he continues to pull from humanity smaller and smaller and smaller groups of people to express his presence and bring God and man back together again in an environment 
that is Garden of Eden Lake. And that is where the, the um, Goshen Valley becomes, this womb of flourishing for this nation of uh, Israel, this family of Jacob, I should say, to become this nation of Israel. They're delivered out of slavery in Egypt into freedom to get to know God, to develop their, their uh, cultural, social, religious identity as Israelites. Um, to have their identity reshaped around the person of Yahweh and to begin to worship him and receive his revelation. And so this is all happening in the wilderness. Now we're going to get into Numbers, and Numbers is going to detail that story for us, that narrative that's going to help you fill out the understanding of these people and these themes that are going to develop through the rest of the Bible. But again, I'm going to stay away from that, and we're going to focus on Leviticus. So we ended Exodus with the um, creation of the tabernacle and all of its drama and splendor and beauty because of a change of heart the people of God had, the, um, the offering that they brought and the supplying of all the things that were necessary for space to be created among this mobile kind of uh, transient group of God's people where he's going to now dwell with them. And so we're getting a little picture in this tabernacle of the Garden of Eden. So this is the special space where God and man can dwell. And so that's dealing with that theme. The next theme that's being developed is okay, well, Adam and Eve were expelled from the Garden of Eden because of their sin, and they went east of Eden. And so there's this movement east where it's away from the presence of God. And now God's doing things in order to bring people back into his presence. And so Leviticus is prescribing for us how do we have an encounter with God in the condition that we are in, fallen, sinful, separated, impure, unclean, filled with iniquity. And so Leviticus is an expression of God's um, gift of purification, of cleansing, of forgiveness, so that his people now can come into his presence. And so if you understand Leviticus in this way, it really is a generous gift of God to anoint this one tribe, the Levites, to appoint from this anointed tribe one high priest, and to create a lineage of high priests that allow God's people to move through space and time and to continue to have unfettered access to God's very presence. But because of the fallen condition, because God yet has not sent this one Messiah that's going to bring this decisive salvation and victory, there's this regular uh, iniquity and sin and purification rituals that have to take place so that sinful man can come into the presence of God and experience communion with God and the blessing of God. So Leviticus kind of details the manner in which God lays out the um, the pathway back to God. So you're going to see Leviticus. There's a few different ways to break it down. Some will break it down into five sections, others four. It seems to fit into three to me uh, personally, but I'm not a brilliant theologian. But in my reading of it, it seemed like there's three three component parts. The, the first is the approach to God. So this is going to be chapters kind of like one through seven, maybe including uh, eight, nine, and 10, where you get some of the narratives about the high priests and the death of Nadab and Abihu and, and so on. And then you're going to get this kind of 11 to 16, which is going to uh, culminate in the Day of Atonement, which is going to be the way in which sins are forgiven and God's, the God space is purified. So now you have a forgiven and purified people in a purified space, and there's this, there's this special reconnection between God and his people that happens just this one time per year, only through the, the representative head, the priest, the high priest himself representing the people in God's presence. This is really special. And then 17, kind of all the way to 27, and there's kind of a break in there as well. There's going to be an, an explanation of how this is supposed to shape in the future. And so you have this pathway into God's presence, and then you have this once purified, what does it look like to maintain this cultural distinction 
as the people of God, this identity that's shaped around having been purified, having been forgiven, and now representing God to each other as a community and then to the rest of the world as this nation of priests. And so when I read Leviticus, this is kind of the, the pathway that I see. Now, there's many, many, many themes that are running through here. And so it's very complex and very interesting, fascinating. There's really, you will not get bored trying to work through some of these things. And so chapter 19 has some beautiful symmetry and creates some categories that provoke thought. There, And I'd love to spend some time in that. But before doing that, I think it's important that we kind of focus in on the center point of Leviticus, and that is the Day of Atonement. So the Day of Atonement um, picks up in, in uh, chapter 16, and I'm actually going to pull it up here so I'm not just speaking from memory and get something wrong. So if we go to Leviticus chapter 16, you'll notice that it begins, uh, the Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron, which is going to harken back to chapter 10 in verse 1 and 2. And so everything that happens between 10 and 16 is uh, a response to this um, this happening between Nadab and Abihu. Now, a, a lot of the questions that I've been getting are people who are really caught off guard by having not spent a lot of time in the Old Testament, and you kind of know what's in there, but you don't typically read it devotionally, and there aren't lots and lots of sermons about it. And a lot of people who are reading this with their children and or grandchildren, and so you know it's in there, and when you read it by yourself, that's one thing, but when you're reading it while exposing a minor... <laughs> It can be a slightly different experience, particularly as you're encountering God who is a consuming fire, who is requiring or or teaching, instructing his people to slaughter animals and to sprinkle blood and um, and to cut people off and to see people stoned and imposing a death penalty. It's very violent. Um, and so there can be this this. Uh, the sense in which you're like, who is this God? He can seem foreign to us, particularly as we've come into a faith that it sees God as revealed most clearly in Jesus, who is the selfless, loving, patient one. Um, For instance, uh, John chapter 8, where the woman caught in adultery, Jesus does not condemn her to stoning, but instead he asks the crowd, like, who is without sin among you? Cast the first stone. And everybody drops their stones from the oldest to the youngest. And when this woman's left alone, Jesus says, where are your accusers? And they're all gone, and neither do I condemn you, and go and sin no more. You think, okay, is that the same God that we saw in the Old Testament? And this is a really valid question, but it reveals the fact that we have a limitation in perspective in the way that we're viewing God. So we're kind of, look, we're kind of viewing God backwards. And the point of the scriptures is actually that we begin to view God from Genesis forward and not from the Gospels backward. And Luke actually brilliantly makes this connection for us. And so if you start in Luke's gospel, Luke is really purposeful to depict Jesus as interacting with every type of unclean or impure person that is detailed in Leviticus chapters 10 and 11. And so if you go back and read Leviticus 11, you see all the things that can make you unclean or separated from God. Those are the people that Jesus goes to. He goes to the house of Gentiles who did not keep kosher feeding, uh, uh, kosher rules in their kitchen. He goes to a dead body to raise the, the dead. He goes to a woman who has an issue of blood. He goes to the leprous. So all the people who are expelled from God's presence and outside of the realm of an encounter with God, those are the very people that Jesus goes to. And so he, Luke is actually really purposefully building from the back of the book forward, but we have this way of kind of looking backward and seeing a God who is very foreign. Now, here's the reality. The reality is, 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 is God is the Holy One. 
God is the one whose definitions count. God is the one who distinguishes good from evil, clean from unclean, common from holy. He's the one who is the anchor point for all these definitions. And so if we come to God and we feel in some way confused or at the worst offended by his behavior, it's very possible that we have substituted ourselves uh, as the category maker and the definer of all of these different things. And that's a very different disposition than we're invited into from the Old Testament. We're called to have a spirit of humility, dependence, and a fear of the Lord, in which case we are looking to God to be the one to explain to us what is good and what is evil, what is right, what is wrong, what is clean, what is unclean, and to accept and receive his good gifts as a story and symbols and foreshadows of what truly brings us back into his presence. Our ancient Near Eastern counterparts, the Israelites, they did not perceive the death of all these animals as absolving them from sin. If that was the case, then they could do this once in their lifetime and never have to do it again. This is a perpetual religious and ritualistic uh, happening. And this was because it was symbolic of the distance between them and the continuing accruing of iniquity and transgression. And so these categories are super important for us, but what they reveal is God being faithful to his promise. You see, the Genesis chapter six, when God floods the earth, is a picture of how God feels about evil in the world. And there's, a, there's a, a resounding truth in each of us when we see evil in the world that we feel the same indignation that God feels, that we feel the same sense of injustice that God feels. And so he is looking in this from a position of being able to and the one who rightly brings judgment. And he has done that in the past, like we see in Genesis 6 or through the destruction of cities like Sodom and Gomorrah, Tyre and Sidon, where the evil is so heinous that God actually intervenes to bring it to a swift end. But the disposition of God is actually to stand back and allow people to function as image bearers, corrupting the very powers that he's given us and working out of self-interest and not out of the fear of the Lord or for the good of the other. And instead of bringing instant and immediate judgment, what God does is he fulfills his purposes by calling and anointing specific people, not perfect people, specific people to bear and receive his promises and his blessings to be a blessing to everyone. And so Leviticus really is an opportunity for us to have a spotlight shown down on the things that separate us from God and his gracious gifts to allow a way to be made for people to come into his presence, to have an encounter with him, to experience cleansing, wholeness, healing, forgiveness, rightness, and then to have a pathway in which to walk that is going to allow for not only the individual uh, righteousness that each person needs that's based in faith towards God, but that is that is walked out through obedience, but also the building of a culture of people who are distinct from the peoples of the earth, the godless peoples of the earth, who are subject in their um, godlessness to the persuasion of the powers of the air. And so they are given to, and we see this in the world now, there's cultures, godless cultures, and, and even godless American cultures, where the God is greed, or the God is power, or the God is sex, or the God is uh, self-love. And this is a spiritual influence that leads people astray and brings about the fruit of death and destruction uh, and, and a corrupt culture. And God is sending a people into that environment to, to know him and to have been purified and cleansed and forgiven, and then to be empowered and directed in how to live in this world with a distinction that makes uh, God, the creator of all things, visible through contrast to the other people. 
So that's still happening today. I mean, that's the kingdom of heaven all day long. This is what Jesus teaches in the Sermon on the Mount. This is what we are called to walk in as ambassadors of Christ. We are, we are compelled to go into the world that is godless and led astray and um, filled with various types of passions and evil, and then to speak truth into that environment, but also to demonstrate uh, what life following God looks like while giving God's good gift of the way of purification and forgiveness. Yeah, and I think that's why it's so important that we come in and ask God, what, how do you see things? Because the people of the land and all, you know, all throughout uh, Psalms and the prophets, you know, they keep saying, you know, those who serve idols, which are all the things that you just named, you'll become like them. Yes. Right. And so it's important for us. The one thing that I see in Leviticus over and over and again is, is be distinct. There's a distinction between God's people and the, and the people of the land. Yes. And so he's like, hey, we're going to come in and, and take over the land because they're evil in all of these kinds of ways. Uh, you know, they've been given over to the idol of sex, like in their lewdness and all these other things. Mm-hmm. And God says, hey, I'm holy. My people need to be holy because I'm holy. And so therefore, like we need to come in with fresh eyes and say, hey, God, how do you see these things and not be a part of our culture today, but be a part of kingdom culture of what God thinks is right? Exactly. Yes. And what we see, we, we don't look uh, retrospectively to imitate what God had done because what God is doing now is in many ways very different from what God did then. But the themes that are developed, the symbols that are used are preparing the way for the revelation of Jesus Messiah. So the Old Testament is all about Jesus. All of these things have a fulfillment in Jesus. This is why we keep in this in this podcast going back to the book of Hebrews and the Gospels and Paul, because they look back with a Jewish heritage and an understanding of the way all these, these things worked, particularly the Day of Atonement. And they put them together. Peter, if you read Peter's letters, the same thing. He sees this Jewish story as being symbolic of what God was doing in and through Israel and all of the component parts of prophet, priest, and king, and exile, return, and repentance, and temple, and and uh, power, and all of these things were pictures of what God ultimately was going to do in the earth for everyone. And so there is a lot of distinction. For instance. Um, God is a God of vengeance and justice. I mean, he says, you know, we don't take vengeance for ourselves. We leave vengeance to the Lord, but he says, vengeance is mine. He is a God of justice and he will bring justice on the earth. That's his department. However, during the theocratic rule of the Israelites, God wielded the nation of Israel as a sword of judgment against the inhabitants of the land of Canaan destroying the inhabitants, the idolatrous inhabitants of the land of Canaan with all their evil practices, and then gifted that land, this land flowing with milk and honey, this um, symbolic promised land, the the Eden space, the temple space, where God's going to bless his people and dwell among them to a distinct people. And so this was a purposeful act of God that he is justified in bringing, and yet it is not paradigmatic of the Christians to take up arms and expel the infidel. And that would be a misunderstanding of of, of retrospective reading of since God did this thing this way, this is now what we ought to do. And in fact, our our call is exactly the opposite. Jesus said that, you know, if his 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 followers don't carry the sword, and if they had carried the sword, they would be busting him out right now. He's calling us to lay down our lives and really to see the role of the state as being, yes, anointed by God, Romans 13, and yes, wielding a sword, and yes, uh, rewarding those who do good and punishing those who do evil, and that we ought to function um, kind of symbiotically with that state in so much as they're fulfilling God's purpose, recognizing their authority from God. But that is not the role 
of the church. And so there's distinctions that are made throughout as the storyline develops. And so you don't want to flatten out those distinctions. You'll come up with some severe errors. However, God is still God. He is the one who exacts judgment. What he says is good is good. What he says is evil is evil. When and how he chooses to, to bring judgment, whether that's through natural disasters or through wars or through final judgment and the return of Christ, he is the God of justice and the God of vengeance. And we do fear him and we do walk in holiness before him, having received his good gift of salvation, ransom, redemption, forgiveness, cleansing, purification, all the things that we're going to see in Leviticus. Can you imagine every, if we came every Sunday sacrificing bulls and we just had like a little farm out back with, with unblemished animals still? Yeah. Right? I mean... <laughs> We just had a petting zoo this past Sunday, and we see these cute little animals, and I cannot imagine the horror on the faces of our children if after petting the the spotless calf, once somebody went over there and slit its throat and spilled its blood into a pitcher and then started splashing it on things, like, that would be like Halloween Horror Nights. I mean, this is not the... <laughs> this is not... This is not... Uh, this is definitely flying in the face of the church growth model, I'll tell you that. Uh, but here's the picture, though. The picture is sin brings death. Trusting and obeying God leads to life. Distrusting, disobeying God leads to death. And there's a long road between disbelief, disobedience, and final death, and it's marked with all varieties of evil. And for God's people to be reminded that they are the ones who carry their own iniquity, and they are the ones who are far away from God, and then God gives this methodology that requires the death of the innocent that they might be cleansed and forgiven. This, this is what starts to create an appetite for what's going to be fulfilled in the gospel of Jesus. And this one thing it really reminds me of is Moses right before God goes by on the mountain that we talked about last week. Moses is like, Lord, let me know your ways yeah. so that I may know you, mm-hmm. that I may find favor in your sight. Right. And like God's here showing his ways yep. as like not, a, you know, it's like a insight for us to look into his heart. Like, what are your ways? Like, you know, don't act in these ways because they're evil. Like it reminds me of uh, Proverbs 8.13, the fear of the Lord is the hatred of evil. Right. So it's like, don't do things that are evil. Yes. You know, like, let me show you how I am. God's like, let me show you how I am, my principles so that you can be like me. Right. So good. And that's the kind of pattern that we see through the offerings, initial offerings in Leviticus, right? So um, the the names that are given, the kind of like English from Latin names that are given to our Bible books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, these have meanings that are tied to the core of the book. Um, Leviticus, obviously, it's, it's kind of the detailing of the Levitical priests, uh, the high priest and the Levites and um, the different members who are operating in and around the temple of God, because it has to do with God dwelling with people and the manner in which that's going to happen. So Leviticus seems like a fair enough title. Um, but in the original uh, Hebrew, these names come from the opening line or words of each book. And so um, like Numbers, for instance, is in the wilderness. And that is a little bit more interesting than Numbers. And there are censuses taken and accounts given and numbers that are in the book, but that is not the primary source of the book. Again, I'm going to stay away from numbers. Leviticus uh, in the original Hebrew is, and he called. And this is, okay, God and Moses, or God is now dwelling in the, in the, in the tabernacle so heavily that God's favorite favored person can't go in. And then M- Moses goes into the tent of meeting and then... God's beginning to speak. And so Leviticus is a revelation of this connection between God's God's people and himself in this particular place, in this particular way. 
through the temple. So this is super powerful stuff. And then we start getting this, these series of different offerings. Now I'm going to, um, probably link in, uh, the weekly e-blast email. If you get that, you'll see, um, um, one of my friends, Alan sent over a kind of a spreadsheet looking document that shows all the different types of offerings and what they did and who was a part of them and what chapter they were in. And it kind of helps you some very analytical people to kind of put all these things together. But if you, if you read these kind of opening chapters of Leviticus, you'll see that there's some categories that we need to function with. For instance, there's a distinction between what is holy and what is common. Now, some of the translations, like the King James in particular, instead of translating this Hebrew word into common, it becomes profane, which has like an innate English pejorative, like this is a bad thing. And so you end up with a concept of like holy or sacred and then the evil and the profane. But that's not really the category. The category is there's the common, there's just the common use, which is like the starting point of everything. And then there's the holy, the set apart, right? And so you, the, the common does not come into the holy. And th- that is where the kind of the analogy of profanity comes from, is when you try to make something common holy without it going through this um, ritualistic rite to have it be purified and cleansed. This is the justification for the death of Nadab and Abihu, right? So their father is the high priest, not them. And they take it upon themselves to do what God had detailed that their father only do. And so there's some presumption that's there and they're taking what is common and bringing it into the holy. And then there's judgment as a result of that. Now, I don't know if you saw this or not, but we've seen this before. Adam and Eve, common, made from the dirt, nothing distinct about them, except that now the blessing of God rests upon them. And so the blessing, the holiness, the set apartness comes from God. And they have some sons who act in a certain way and violence is created and there's judgment against the violence. And so you're getting some of these themes. Again, same thing. Noah finds favor in God's sight, uh, is, is in obedience, preserved, creates this new line. And then he has a son and the son acts presumptively in a way to, uh, to overpower or to take on the position of his father and to brag about doing so. And so there's judgment for that. And so you're seeing this kind of like, okay, the promise is that a, a, a human is going to come. And so every time there's new humans born or a new line identified or a blessing flowing through a series of the patriarchy, you're going, okay, where, where's that blessed one going to come from? And so when you get to Aaron, the high priest, and he has sons, you have a lot of expectation on these sons. And then they act presumptively to make what is common into the holy. And as a result, they're consumed. And so like, these are these kind of themes that are, and that seems pretty severe. We're going, okay, they use the wrong fire and now they're dead. Like what is going on here? And, and Aaron is left to say nothing. He, he approves of God's judgment. And, you know, there's at the end that tension in chapter 10 between Moses and Aaron where he's, he's um, mourning as quietly as possible the death of his sons. And, and so there's a lot of tension that's wrapped around there. But the, the concept there is you don't, you don't prescribe the manner in which the common comes into the holy. God does. Yeah, and, and even after that, Moses is uh, instructing Aaron, like, don't um, detest this and tear your clothes. Like, yeah. you have to, you're still holy as the high priest. Like, you act accordingly, even though, like, I can't, I can't imagine being Aaron and just watching your two sons consumed. Like, I'd want to tear my clothes. Yeah. But, like, Moses is like, hey, you're still the anointed high priest. Don't you dare leave. Mm-hmm. Don't you do anything. Like, you, you still need to treat God as holy, even though you, what just happened happened. Right. And then it isn't until the end when he doesn't eat of the offering and he's, he says, how am I supposed to eat? 
uh, after what I've experienced. And Moses says, okay, well, that's acceptable to me, that form of grieving. And so, yeah, there's a human element where we're going, man, this is really terrible. But that really terrible kind of like gut wrench reaction that we have ought to point us to the fact that God is not to be trifled with. And you'll notice, I didn't really see this until this go around, there's that prohibition that's given about not drinking on the job. And I'm thinking to myself, okay, that's hearkening again back to, to Noah and his drunkenness. God's man has to stay sharp. And I it, it doesn't actually say that these guys were boozing, but um, the, the idea is Nadab and Abihu were under, the inf, under a different influence, let's say. And so there's this new prohibition that's added. Now, a bunch of new stuff gets added from that point forward leading up to um, the Day of Atonement. And that's how chapter 16 begins. Uh, the Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron when they drew near before the Lord and died. So then we get this description of uh, what's going to take place in how this one time a year, there's purification that's going to be created so that the people of God can draw near to God uh, and the space, the dwelling space where God and man interact is kind of purified and cleansed from the generic iniquity of the people. And uh, not all this is moral. So there, the, these categories are a little tricky, but there's there's a couple different layers that are happening here. On the one hand, in Leviticus, you're getting these descriptions of things that make someone impure. And some of them are very intuitive and others are not for us culturally. So Yes, someone has a boil and we're going to watch it and we're going to wait and we're going to see if it ends up being contagious or oozing. There's lots of gross descriptors in there. Same thing with the mildew on the house and is it spreading or is it dying? Do we cut out a piece or we knock the whole thing down? And so these are these are things that have nothing to do with guilt. They're, they're not related to sin. They're kind of related to living in a fallen world. So we exist in this realm of fallenness. And one of the things I think it's really tricky for us in the 21st century is the whole bodily discharges, Right. So we're going, all right, so the very normal part of life are these bodily discharges um, in the sexual union and with uh, menstruation and childbirth. And like these are like very gritty parts of life. And we're, we're thinking from a more modernist perspective of, okay, we should wash our hands and we should wear gloves and there's ways to keep things clean and there's things you don't want to mix. And, and, and we're thinking about this medically but our, in the ancient Near East, they were not thinking about it medically. They were thinking about it metaphysically. So all of these things have to do with the reproduction of humanity born into this environment of impurity. And there's there's little tastes of death along the way. Childbirth was very dangerous. Many women died during childbirth. Many children did not uh, live to see their first year. And so there's a lot of death associated with uh, bodily discharge. There's also, this is where new life comes from. And so as one generation gives way to the next, uh, there's an association of death. And so um, I was having this conversation with um, my 13-year-old daughter who was asking the question this past week, okay, it seems unfair that there was this 66 and 33. I think we talked about that. Okay, why is it that there's a 66 and 33 days of purification when a woman has a boy versus a girl? And does that mean that boys are better than girls? And why, why is that? Un- it's not unjust. It's about the purification of the female being different than the purification of the male. So the woman has a baby and she has these days of purification. If she has a male child, he's circumcised on the eighth day. And now he is ritualistically set apart, purified through the ordinance of circumcision. If she has a daughter, there is not a counterpart to circumcision. And so the daughter has the same purification time that the mom has, which effectively, because of the two genders, doubles the purification time. It's not to say that boys are better than girls or that girls are somehow more unclean. It's just in this case, there's two of them involved and not one of them involved. 
And so th these are the conversations that, that we're continuing to have to go, okay, how do we read this and what does it hit us as, but what did the original re readers understand these things to mean? And so, you know, we actually have our own counterintuitive kind of ways of doing impurity. I don't know if you guys have thought about this at all, but we just went through this COVID pandemic and um, there's a lot of debates about the efficacy of masks and mask wearing and double masks and vaccines and social distancing and what's effective and what isn't. And a lot of the things that we were doing had little or no bearing in reality, let's be honest. And so the data is telling us that those things were making us feel better and they connected to some intuitive sense that we were making things better for everyone. And so they had individual benefits and collective communal benefits in our minds, but reality, that was not the case. And so this is not too distinct. They're just different sets for our ancient Near Eastern counterparts. So this means that there's kind of two categories. There is the impurity that exists from living in a fallen world that has nothing to do with guilt. It just has to do with you got sick, you scratched your arm, it got infected, you had an emission or you had a, a, a baby. And so those things are expressions of life in this fallen world. And in the ancient Hebrew mind and in the revelation of God, these are the things, the kinds of things that separate you from God because he is holy and you are impure. But there's a process to be cleansed from impurity and to be made pure. And so you go from being defiled to being undefiled, from being ceremonially impure to being cleansed. And so there's a lot of water and a lot of washings, and these things are ritualistic. And the picture here is how does a person live in the world and then make themselves presentable to, to God? And so he gifts these methods by which we can come back from this world in which we live into his presence. And there's connection to things like, you know, death and, and childbearing and sickness and just the grossness of the world in which we live. And then there's a whole other layer that has to do with sin, iniquity, transgression, things that we have done wrong that must be atoned for. And so Leviticus lays out for us different categories of distance from God and then reun reunion with God and encounter with God and the way in which these things get managed. And for some of these things, there are peace offerings, burnt offerings, sin offerings, guilt offerings, and all of them have to do with your proximity to God and your relationship with God. Some of them have to do with ritual purification. Some of them have to do with actual atonement. And so this concept of the day of atonement kind of culminates this for the entire people. And if you have these categories in your mind of sin, iniquity, things that have been done wrong, and we live in this kind of dirty world where there's all this carryover of a generational uh, expansion with this curse on us that has to be kind of cleansed off of us, the, the terminology that we see in Leviticus gives you this picture of, all right, the proximity of God's people is in a way profaning or... Um, um, see the, this is the Bible project podcast I listen to sometimes uses the word like vandalizes essentially like it's, it's caught, it's like splashing iniquity into the presence of God. And over time that has to be cleansed. And aside from that, there's the sins of the people that separate them from God and incur judgment. And so there must be a substitute death in order for those people to be forgiven, redeemed, ransomed, and brought near. And so this culminates into this dual sacrifice that's different than the first seven chapters of Leviticus on the Day of Atonement, where two goats are chosen, and these goats are chosen, one, to be the spotless, innocent victim to purify the presence of God on behalf of the people. And this is where the blood of that innocent goat, which is chosen by Lot, 
is taken, that blood is taken into the most holy place and sprinkled at the mercy seat, the place where God's presence is most prominent and where he dwells with mankind. And then you get Aaron moving out of that presence eastward, further and further and further away from God, closer to the people. And that east movement is always associated with judgment and that, that cleansing blood is now uh, essentially creating a pathway back from judgment to the presence of God. And so the presence of God is being purified. And then the sins of the people with both hands being laid on the head of the other goat, being confessed over this other goat, now these sins are being removed from the people. And so you're getting both the purification and also the forgiveness, atoning, sacrifice, redemption, ransom language on this other goat. Now, the reason I brought up this whole thing about the enemy and the the seed of the woman crushing the seed of the serpent is that in a lot of English translations, um, NIV and so on, that scapegoat word is used. And if you read the English Standard Version, instead of that word scapegoat, there's a transliteration of the Hebrew word Azazel. And Azazel is, you'll notice that L ending is God, um, and Azaz means like strong. And so the picture there, and they use the transliteration because this scapegoat uh, interpretation has been uh, long and storied. And some, some theologians would see this as, Uh, The idea of a scapegoat is that the sins of the people are put on this goat and it kind of expiates the sins out into the wilderness and takes them away. But this Azazel is actually like a spiritual being and it represents God's enemy. This would be like a a strong God or a strong spirit that exists in the wilderness. And you're going to see these themes, obviously, when Jesus is anointed at his baptism and then he's immediately led by the Holy Spirit. Where? Into the wilderness to oppose the enemy of God through the temptations to bypass his own death, representing that second goat, um, and he defeats the enemy in the wilderness. And so these kind of um, goats are given different names, one unto Yahweh and one unto Azazel. And so you can read on this if you're interested in it, and a lot of people think very differently about it. Um, but the the reality is, is the, the one goat that goes into the wilderness represents the forgiveness of the sins and the separation of the sins from the people of Israel and their forgiveness. And the other goat isn't necessarily like atoning for those sins. It is making an atonement to purify the place where God has been profaned because of his guilty people. And so both of these two things connect um, on the day of atonement where the people of God are purified and forgiven and where the space in which God exists is purified. And now the people of God uh, come back into a right relationship with God. And this has to happen every single year. And so this is a perpetual sacrifice. So there's lots of reading that can be done on that. Um, But the picture here, if you read it in the Azazel kind of fashion, is that God is essentially um, packaging up all of the sins of his people and putting them in a garbage bag and tossing them like a bag of poo lit on fire and throwing it on the devil's doorstep. And this is what this other goat is representing. Um, Obviously, there's lots of distinction and difference in uh, interpretation, and it's a little fuzzy on the language side. But Wonderful thing for you to study. Picture there, though, and you're going to see this in First Peter 2. You're going to see this in the letter to the Hebrews. You're going to definitely see this in all of the gospel narratives and Jesus hijacking the Passover as the timing for his sacrifice, the spotless lamb, the, the cup of his blood poured out on our behalf. You'll remember the blood was sprinkled and then whatever blood was left was poured out on the ground in the ditch near the, near the altar. And so here, Jesus is seeing himself as this atoning sacrifice for sins. He's the one preparing a way back to God, and he's becoming our substitute. He's the one who expiates our sins away and clothes us with righteousness to be in God's presence. 
And so he is the fulfillment of the day of atonement. He is the, the high priest. He is the one who has access into God's presence. And as Hebrews will tell us, not once a year and being prevented by death generation after generation, but once for all by his own blood, he made a way into the Holy of Holies. At his death, the curtain in the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And now we all, Ephesians 2 says, have access in one spirit to God, both those who have been far off and those who are near. Christ came and preached peace to us. He is our atoning sacrifice. So this is what Leviticus details for us. And this is at the center of Leviticus, which details for us, how do we come into the presence of a holy God? And it's violent and scary and involves death and a lot of blood and a lot of gore and a lot of burning and a lot of sacrifice to show us the severity of our situation and the power of what God would do when he not gives us symbols to show us the distance between us and him and the death that comes from sin but actually acts in real time through himself and by the sacrifice of his own life so that we could be his forever. That's the center of of Leviticus. And then as you move forward in Leviticus, you're going to see more and more and more instruction on what it looks like now as a purified people to live in a way that is distinct, both individually and collectively. Individually, so that we create a community of people who are treating each other as the way God treats us, And then collectively, as we represent to a world under the power of the evil one, what it looks like to be a nation whose God is the Lord. And that's what I want to talk about next. So look with me at Leviticus 19. I love this chapter, and this is super cool. You are going to notice the often repeated, I am the Lord, um, your God. And this is the exclamation point that is put on uh, two sets of seven commands that detail for us in kind of uh, imitative fashion of the entire book, what it looks like for us to come into God's presence and be his as individuals. And what it looks like for us to walk in that individual calling, having been purified and set apart. So the first half is kind of directed to individuals. The second set of seven is directed to the whole um, community and, and shows this culture that's being built. So let's look at Leviticus 19 together. Verse one. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, you shall be holy for I, the Lord, your God am holy. So that's going to be your go-to verse for Leviticus. And then you're going to notice a uh, set of seven commands, each of them ending with, I am the Lord, your God. And then you're going to get down to verse 18, which is the passage Jesus pulls as the second command that is like the first, that we love the Lord our God with our heart and soul and mind and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. This is where that verse comes from, Leviticus 19, verse 18. And that creates the hinge point of now a second set of seven commands that describe how we are meant to be a distinct people or how the Israelites are meant to be a distinct people among the peoples of the earth. And in this chapter, some of the the key verses that people were asking me questions about. So let's look at them kind of quickly together. So you get to verse three and you get the first of the first set of seven. So you get these rightly ordered relationships between God and man. Every one of you shall revere his father and his mother. You shall keep my Sabbaths. I am the Lord, your God. Now that's going to take you right back to Exodus 20 and the 10 commandments. And this is the kind of person you should be. You should be a mother, father, revering person. So we have a generational plan here and you shall keep my Sabbaths. And so we have a faith in God and toward him and a distinction among peoples of the earth based on belonging to God. And we get the punctuation mark of, I am the Lord, your God. And then we see the second of the seven. Do not turn to idols or make for yourself any gods of cast metal. I am the Lord your God. So again, hearkening to the Ten Commandments, the second commandment of not having any graven images. 
And so he's saying to each individual, I'm God, everything else is not, don't make idols. And then we see number three, when you offer a sacrifice of peace offering to the Lord, you shall offer it so that you may be accepted. And so we get this Levitical paradigm of coming into the presence of God and bringing an offering so that we are accepted into his presence. This is hearkening us back to the Cain and Abel dilemma where God is saying to Cain, will you not be accepted? If you're doing what's right, will you not be accepted? Verse six, it shall be eaten on the same day you offer it or on the day after and anything left over until the third day shall be burned up with fire. Now, again, you're going to see this kind of mix of um, instruction for kind of human flourishing and symbolism. So obviously there's no refrigeration. And so you've cooked some meat. You can eat it the day you cooked it. And God's saying, you can eat it the next day after that, but day three leftovers go into the fire. And so that makes sense. You're not going to want to keep food around. It's eventually going to rot and make you sick if you consume it. But you're also getting this third day uh, distinction. So we have an offering and then death and then a reference to the third day, which we're going to see again and again and again and again and again, and is going to be fulfilled ultimately through the resurrection of Jesus. If it is eaten on the third day, it is tainted. It will not be accepted. And everyone who eats it shall bear his iniquity because he has profaned or called common what is holy to the Lord, and that person shall be cut off from his people. So here we get these pictures of God wants you to come in. He wants, he's given you a, a method by which you can be accepted. But if you don't obey him in the manner in which that offering is to be exacted, and you take it upon yourself to decide, well, now you are profaning the name of the Lord because you are taking something that is common and you are calling it holy. And that will cut you off from the people of God. And then this section continues in verse 9 before we're going to get that punctuation mark where it says, When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge. Neither shall you gather the gleanings after you harvest. And you shall not strip your vineyard bare. Neither shall you garner the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. And so this is kind of the original entitlements program. So this is social services for the Israelites. So you, if you own fields and you have a, a, a product, if you um, have a harvest, almost all of it's for you, but there is a tax involved and the tax is leave the stuff that falls on the ground. So you, there's, there's an impulse against greed and that creates place for people who do not have land or who have come into hard circumstances where they can come and glean from your property. And so uh, we have, on the one hand, here's what it looks like for you to be right with God individually. And then as an expression, you are creating an environment where you are treating other people with dignity and value, even though they are under uh, what you might see as judgment or or loss or in, in a bind. And so this is what God's saying that you're supposed to be restrained by. And so we're seeing this start to develop. Here's God's instructions and there's repercussions. Um, in verse 11, after this punctuation point of I am Lord your God, we see the four in the set of seven. You shall not steal. You shall not deal falsely. You shall not lie to one another. You shall not swear by the name falsely. And so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. And so here, this, is, this little set now is going to start to build from uh, kind of individual manipulation and evil into systemic injustice. So you're going to see you shall not steal. And so we have property rights. So what, what you own is yours and God is creating a system, a legal system that protects property rights. And that's really important for a flourishing society. And then we get, you shall not deal falsely. And so there's, you do not, you do not defraud and you don't lie to one another. And so this is 
everything from, you know, you're trying to sell a car and you know the car has engine problems and you put some stuff in it so it doesn't tick for five minutes and you stick a, a paperclip in the air conditioner to make it work for long enough to sell it and you're essentially defrauding people and God's saying, nope, uh, you're not going to be that kind of person. And that's the fourth in the set of seven. So we're starting to see these social implications. And in verse 13, the, f- the five of seven you shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. And now you're getting the exploitation of position power. So if you have uh, more power or you are an owner of land and you are now hiring people out, there's a there's a potential you, for you to exploit the people who work for you and to rob people of their wages. We're going to see a whole lot more laws about this. The wages of a hired worker shall not remain with you all night until the morning. You shall not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind. You shall, you shall fear your God. I am the Lord. So this is like the disabilities act in, in, uh, God's culture. So he's creating a culture where you don't use position power to take advantage of people who are lower down on the totem pole of influence and ability. So if you hire somebody for a day's wage, you need to pay him for that day. You don't keep that money overnight. Um, that would be evil. And then we're looking at, okay, so there's people who can't hear and you don't curse them. There's people who can't see and you don't trip them. And so you are living before God, um, even though there is not immediate um, consequence to your actions or knowledge from any other person. So this is very intimate before you and God. And it's also starting to build in terms of, okay, we're not going to, we're not going to steal things from our neighbor. We're not going to deal falsely. Okay, well, now we're not going to use our position power to oppress other people. And then in verse 15, in the six of the seven, in this first set, you're going to see the the commands against systemic injustice. You shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great. So here we have two poles of the, the way in which we could show partiality. So we could take it upon ourselves to deal on behalf of poor people. And we see this all the time when low-income people file a lawsuit, unjust lawsuit against the insurance company and a judge or lawyers work to get a big settlement for a poor person at the result, at the expense of an insurance company who's non-personal and has access to all these funds and maybe is seen as evil. And so God's saying, nope, we don't, we're not partial to the poor or defer to the great. So you're not taking bribes. You're not giving powerful people, you don't let them skate. Of course, we see that all the time as well. When banks get too big to fail and corporations get away with all kinds of atrocities and evils and collude with governments and so on. But instead, in righteousness, you shall judge your neighbor. And so there is a standard that comes from God that is how um, settlements ought to be made, and it ought to be just. You shall not go around as a slander among your people, and you shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. And so here we're seeing um, slander and separation, division, and then giving testimony against um, your neighbor. And so this is all in the court system. And again, punctuated by I am the Lord. And then the seventh of this uh, first set of seven goes deep on the inside. So now we're going to your, your own emotional maintenance. Okay, how are you perceiving the world around you? How are you perceiving self, God, and others? So verse 17 says, You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor. And I'll tell you, this is still a hard one for people. They just would rather feel all kinds of feels and say nothing than to go have a frank conversation with another person. Lest you incur sin because of him, and this is separating you from God, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. And of course, this is going to take us all the way to Luke 17 and the parable of the Good Samaritan and the who is my neighbor and how do I fulfill this command? 
And this is not the point. The point here is, have you elevated yourself to God in your judgments against other people? Or are you maintaining an internal emotional balance towards other people based on your position before God, having been forgiven, purified, and welcomed into God's presence, seeing yourself as a steward of everything that God has entrusted to your care, and having been sent as an ambassador to represent the heart of God to all people. This is what this verse is hearkening to, and this is what Jesus sees as the hot spot of applying the greatest commandment to love the Lord your God with all of your heart and soul and mind and strength. And we find it right here in the dead center of Leviticus in chapter 19. I feel, I feel like it's like all of these prescriptive things that we just went over are like love your neighbor, love God and mm-hmm. love your neighbor. Like if you're thinking about loving somebody as you love yourself, these things should all come out naturally. Right. You should do right by others. Right. Yeah. Like, hey, let me take care of you or like not treat you differently because you're poor or rich mm-hmm. or, you know, all these things seem like really straightforward mm-hmm. or like, you know, like logical in a way. Yep. Yep. They are. And they're very uh, intuitive. And this is one of the things that we're going to see. We want to be treated this way. And so the manner in which they're set up is meant to uh, signify balance and approach and the importance of uh, personal holiness, setting, seeing yourself in connection to God, be holy for the Lord, your God is holy. So everything that you're doing is based on your connection to and relationship with the Lord. And so this is very personal and has social implications. And so um, Moses here creates this, this uh, binary set of two sevens that are going to have some kind of compare and compra- contrast element. And, but they're going to be kind of really building towards this command in 19 verse 18. And then at the end of the chapter, the hinge point is verse 19. So 19, 19 is the hint, the hinge. And you're going to see, you shall keep my statutes. And then you're going to see um, this this command to keep distinctions, okay? And so this is what is going to signify your mind to go, okay, now we're not just talking about the culture, the internal culture that we're going to build in the way that we treat one another inside of our interpersonal interactions with other fellow Israelites before God, but now we're talking about existing in a world with lots of other people. And so the next little section here is going to deal with distinctions, okay? So we see in verse 19, you shall not let your cattle breed with a different kind. You shall not sow your field with two kinds of seed. You shall not wear a garment of cloth made of two kinds of material. Now, this can seem arbitrary, but this is a command from God. So he's saying, you're going to make a distinction between the common and the holy. I'm holy, you be holy. And now I'm telling you as God that you are going to create distinctions in the way in which you operate in regular life that may not make sense to you. But I am telling you, these things are separate and ought not to be mixed. And so this is a way that you're going to keep distinctions And these are distinctions that are not going to be kept in the societies into which the Israelites are going to conquest. And the influence that is going to be brought on God's people is going to be to ignore the things that God has said. And instead of being a distinct people among the nations of the world, they're going to blend in and synchronize with those nations. And that's going to incur the judgment of God. So that's, this is all part of the first of the seven in the second set. The second one, uh, this is still in the same number one, but verse 20 says, if a man lies sexually with a woman who is a slave assigned to another man and not yet ransomed or given her freedom, listen, a distinction shall be made. Now, this is important because when you get to chapter 20, the the um, repercussion, the penalty for adultery is going to be that both the man and the woman are, are stoned to death. So it's death penalty for adultery. But it says if a man lies sexually with a woman who is a slave, 
assigned to another man and not yet ransomed or given her freedom, a distinction shall be made. And here again, you're seeing a man who is exercising position power as a freed person acting in a way that brings a person with less societal power into immorality. And yet God is saying you should make a distinction. They shall not be put to death because she was not free. And so she is not liable to the same type of judgment as a free married woman would have been knowing what her evil was and having every uh, opportunity to avoid that evil. Instead, she, because of her position of influence, and we have the same thing. I mean, this is why it's more heinous when a religious leader or a school teacher or someone who has position power exploits someone under them sexually. And there's even in our own society, there's, there's higher standards and higher penalties for school teachers who sleep with a minor than for a random 23 year old who sleeps with a 17 year old girlfriend that one is statutory rape and the other one has 10 years of jail time associated. And this is the same concept here is we're making distinctions. So God is the one who says these things that are different ought to be set, set apart. And then we don't just uh, slap a sticker onto every situation. Distinctions are made based on the value of a person and the, and the, not the value of the person, but in the, the situation in which they find themselves. So here we're being called into wisdom and judgments. And you're going to see this develop in the storyline. Uh, there's going to be a number of places, especially in uh, Joshua, when the land begins to be doled out based on the previous um, recorded distribution uh, in the Pentateuch. There's going to be these five daughters that whose father passed away, and they're not supposed to inherit the land. And so they're going to go and say, hey, we were supposed to get this land, and our father is dead, and so it's going to go to his brother, but it seems like it should go to us. And there isn't a law that says anything about that, but the Lord is consulted, and he agrees that, yes, these women should now become the inheritors of this land, that it's not fair. And so the law doesn't say everything there is to be said, but these types of um, distinctions are being given to show, like, the way the law is applied is not one size fits all. Lots of factors are included, but the spirit of the thing, the heart of the thing is still intact. And this shows, this shows a picture of God, his mercy, his power, his love, his distinction, his holiness, and how his heart gets, gets applied to a broken world with all kinds of things that aren't as they should be. And so I love these types of passages. They're super important to me. So because this woman wasn't free, she should not be receiving the same penalty as she would. Instead, he shall bring his compensation to the Lord to the entrance of the tent of meeting. And again, here we have movement back towards God. God's getting right in people's business, right in people's sexual immorality. But he's saying, come to me, bring a ram for a guilt offering because you've done something wrong. The priest shall make atonement. So here we have this, this function of a man with a, with representing mediation between God and man, making atonement. And so there's a forgiveness and a cleansing and a purification with the ram of the guilt offering before the Lord for the sin he has committed. So God pulls no punches and saying that this is wrong, but the penalty and the process is going to be different because of the uniqueness of this situation. And he shall be forgiven for the sin that he has committed. And so there's all kinds of questions that jump out of here. But the point here is that um, God's people are going to be keeping distinctions in their application of God's laws. Verse 23 says, when you come into the land and plant any kind of tree for food, and here's that word again, it's different in the English, but you shall regard or you shall see as a distinction, it's fruit as forbidden. Three years it shall be forbidden for you. And here we are again with the forbidden fruit. Does this sound familiar? So yes, you're going to come into the land and you're going to plant trees, but you are not to eat from those trees for three years. 
In the fourth year, all its fruit shall be holy, which means now, yes, we're keeping it, but we're giving it to the Lord. It's an offering of praise to the Lord. And in the fifth year, you may eat of its fruit to increase its yield for you. I am the Lord your God. And again, this is a command for us to trust the Lord, which is hard when you're seeing your fruit tree, which you planted in year two, bearing fruit, and you could eat it, and you're hungry, and it belongs to you. But instead, you're going to trust the Lord and keep a distinction and see that tree as being forbidden until the time in which God says that it's acceptable and which he has received his own offering of praise from it. So that's a big section there, but it's showing this kind of cultural distinction that's going to stand in stark contrast to the people's that are inhabiting the land that the people of God are about to take over. Are you seeing the patterns that are developing here and how these implications are? And the 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 um, kind of exclamation point of I am the Lord that distinguish each of these sets and how they're all compiled. There's some real brilliance in literary composition that are here. And then those are meant to kind of take us on a journey to kind of get a picture of God and how he interacts with people, how he gets into the the difficulty of our lives, our mistakes, and continues to make a way to bring us back. And so again, here's some distinctions in the second set of seven. Number two, you shall not eat any flesh with the blood in it. You shall not interpret omens or tell fortunes. You shall not round off the hair of your temples or mar the edges of your beard. You shall not make any cuts on your body for the dead or tattoo yourselves. I am the Lord. And so here is the infamous prohibition against tattoos. So everybody always asks me about this because tattoos are the are all the rage uh, right now. I suppose they always have been, but especially among Christians, um, lots of lots of Hebrew and Greek being tattooed on the arms of uh, God's people. And then we ask the question, okay, is this a prohibition that Christians should um, believe in as well? Or is this simply for the Levites? Or is this for the people of God in the ancient Near East and the wilderness wanderings? And what's the connection here? So I want to just talk about this for just a second. First off, all of these things have this in common. These are pagan rituals that have to do with breaking the um, the boundary between life and death. And these are things that would be imitated by God's people that the people of Canaan were doing. And so uh, eating flesh with blood in it. So the blood is the, the life is in the blood. And so the people of God were forbidden from consuming blood because that is the source of its life. And so the, the lifeblood is what's taken in the offering, the purification offering of the lifeblood of an animal, spotless and without blemish, is what is sprinkled on the mercy seat and what is brought eastwardly through all of the components of the meeting place of God. This is what cleanses life given for death. This is what reconnects us to God. So we do not arbitrarily drink blood. But this would have been a ritual that the pagans of that time period would have partaken in um, as a way of connecting with the dead. And so this is also uh, interpreting omens or telling fortunes. This is connected to necromancy, which we're going to see here. This is where we're kind of going from the physical to the spiritual and God saying, nope, that's not for you. And then um, there's the way in which you keep your hair, cut your hair or beard or cut your skin. And here's that phrase again, um, to cut, cut your body for the dead or tattoo yourself. So the connection here and the word there is print. You won't see the word tattoo anywhere else in the whole Bible. But the idea here is you're making marks on your body on behalf of someone who's already passed out of the physical life and into the next life or shield or the grave or whatever that is. And so this is a connection between across boundaries and God is saying, nope, that all those things are evil off limits for you. There is one place where heaven and earth connect. There is one place where death gives way to life. There's one place where forgiveness takes place. There's one place where revelation, divine revelation takes place and it's with God and all of these other ways that the culture around Israel is looking to 
make those connections are evil and hijacked by the enemy. And so those, those are not for you. So should you get a tattoo? Probably not. But are you disobeying Leviticus 19 and verse 28? If you do, more than likely, unless you're trying to connect yourself to some dead person and bridge between life and death um, in a pagan ritual, then that probably has nothing to do with um, you getting some tribal art on your arm. Okay. Number three of seven, personal evil corrupts the whole. Look at this. In verse 29, we're going to see that the things that you do matter for everyone. Look at verse 29. Do not profane your daughter by making her a prostitute, lest the land fall into prostitution and the land become full of depravity. You shall keep my Sabbaths and reverence my sanctuary. I am the Lord. And so here the question is, were people tempted to uh, essentially pimp out their daughters, seeing their daughters as product to be exploited for personal wealth, and this is not something that has implications on you only. So yes, it is a specific evil, but it also leads the land into this as a pattern. And so your your evil choices actually have an influence on the whole. And then when the whole goes astray and it's full of depravity, you're going to be um, bringing on God's judgment. And so don't, don't go down that pathway. And then you're going to see this um, contrast saying, no, in fact, you're going to keep my Sabbaths. Now, if someone is trying to make extra money by pimping out their own children, chances are they've stopped observing the Sabbath some time ago and are seeking to be profitable seven days a week. And so the connection here is between trusting God and not taking income into your own hand by doing great evil and instead revering the sanctuary of the Lord, identifying him. So again, all these things punctuated by this phrase, I am the Lord, and starting this chapter with be holy as I am holy, I'm the Lord your God, the connection between God personally and culturally, um, the, the gifts that God gives to purify and forgive and bring people back into his presence, the way that that's represented in the wilderness wandering, in the tabernacle, the presence of God there with his people, the severity of the sacrificial system, the death of the sons of Aaron, a lot of the stuff we're going to see, it gets ugly in numbers because there's still a huge struggle with faith and trust in God and obedience. And there's a lot of judgment in God's people through the wilderness wanderings and a lot of violence takes place. But the picture here is the holiness of God, the reverence of God and the purposes of God being fulfilled, even despite the wickedness of man and the faithlessness of man. And so these two sets of seven show us what it looks like to be a God-like person that loves the person in front of them and to do so in a way that builds a God-like society and, and preserves a culture that is not influenced to evil by those around them. And so you're going to see that in the next, the final three of seven in the second set. You shall stand up before the gray head and honor the face of an old man. You shall fear your God. I am the Lord your God. So here we're showing honor to those who are older than us and not the, the obviously the, the, the opposite of that would be to disregard the aged and to idolize the beauty of youth and uh, strength and power. And so this is God saying, no, no, we're going to have a multi-generational society of honor where we are not going to judge someone by how valuable they are socioeconomically or how strong they are or what they can do for us. But instead, we're going to see the aged as being revered. And so that's going to be a different type of, of uh, culture of honor. And then we're going to see this culture of hospitality, not hostility. Verse 33, when a stranger sojourns with you in your land, you shall not do him wrong. So this is not someone to be victimized by you, which is, which is kind of what we saw in the Sodom and Gomorrah narrative. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself. 
as you were strangers in the land of Egypt, I am the Lord your God. I think this kind of answers the question that was asked to Jesus in Luke 17. But uh, again, this is societal and not just individualistic. And then finally, the chapter ends with the seventh of seven in the second set, dictating this culture of justice and not greed. You shall do no wrong in judgment in measures of length or weight or quantity. You shall have just balances, just weights, a just ephah and a just hin. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, and you shall observe all my statutes and my rules and do them. I am the Lord. And so here in Leviticus 19, you get this beautiful symmetry hinged on this command to keep my ordinances, beginning with being holy, ending with following God's rules, and dictating for us what it looks like to be a person who honors God and loves others and does so to build a society of people who are distinct from a world who is under the influence of the evil one and is keeping distinctions that put God on display. And so I just love Leviticus 19. There's so many more things we could talk about from this book, but uh, we're going to come back around again and again and again as we continue to read the scriptures. And um, one of the things you'll notice as you get further along in the story is having read all these things, you're going to get to other parts of the Old and New Testament, and you're going to read things and go, oh my goodness, that is what they're talking about. And it links all the way back uh, to Leviticus. And so you're going to see this again and again and again. You will not be disappointed. Thanks for um, working through this section with us. I know that this has been a lot. Hopefully it answered a lot of your questions and it likely created some questions that you didn't have before we started. But it's driving us deeper into God's word and into understanding his heart and into living our lives in a way that leads people to Jesus. We look forward to having you join us this coming Sunday as we dive into the book of Numbers. And again, please send in your questions. We would love to address them on the podcast. Thanks for following, guys. We hope you enjoyed this week's deep dive into the scriptures. Our goal is to help you know Jesus better so that you can implement your identity in Christ, engage in your unique purpose and calling, and create community around your relationship with Jesus. For more content like this and opportunities to connect with us in person, find us online at joinwithjesus.org.